Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today, our guest is not actually from Ohio, really. He's actually out in Colorado. But Doug Ullman, the CEO of Pelotonia, mentioned his name and said, hey, this is someone you guys should get in touch with. I think he'd be great for the show. And after we did some quick research on him, we definitely agreed. And so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It's going to be a great show, and I hope you learn a lot. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, Go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. Our final shout out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, Email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great guest with us on the show today, uh, Mr. Chris Warner. And Chris has a long laundry list of accomplishments, some of which include Emmy-nominated filmmaker, successful entrepreneur, one of few humans to ever summit K2 and Mount Everest, and current motivational speaker. And we're really excited to have him on the show today. But Josh has a few more stats. Yeah, guys, he's one of America's top climbers. He's summited mountains in the Alps, Africa, the Andes of Peru, Ecuador, Argentina, the Himalayas of Nepal, as well as Tibet, including Mount Everest, among many others. He has writings on leadership that have appeared in several distinguished business magazines, and he's a well-established author. So also the owner of Earth Treks, and welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. So kind of to kick things off the way that we like to start, I mean, you have an amazing story, and 
we could probably spend an hour on any piece of your life, but I'd like to start at the beginning, I guess. Tell us a little bit about your childhood up until um, when your mountain climbing days started. Yeah, that's a fun place to start. So um, I grew up as one of six kids. I was born in New York City, and we moved to New Jersey when we were little. And I just was always fascinated by adventure. I think, you know, an early influence on me was actually when the, the you know, NASA put the first people on the moon. So I was in kindergarten when that happened, and I just remember being completely fascinated by this whole idea of exploration and, you know, what human beings were capable of. And that just led me down a path as I, you know, became old enough to read books and do stuff like that. I always was reading about these adventurers and the crazy places they went. So as I, you know, got older and got a chance to, you know, plot my own little adventures, they were always outdoor adventures, you know, as fishing or hiking or backpacking or eventually rock climbing. And that led me to get out of New Jersey as fast as I possibly can. <laughs> and so I think I spent my whole life running away from New Jersey. There aren't too many mountains in New Jersey, are there? No, no, it's hilarious. I ran into the youngest person to summit the highest peaks on the lower 48 states. And I asked him about what it was like to climb High Point, New Jersey, which is the highest point there. And he said that the day they went there was the windiest mountain earring day he had ever had. And he had a cower behind these boulders to be not blown off of the highest point in New Jersey. So. There, Mount Everest is, is, has nothing on High Point, New Jersey. Uh, have you always been uh, drawn to the? I mean, what what drew you to the outdoors? Well, the most formative experience I had was when I was 15 years old, and um, the town's parole officer came to our uh, our homeroom and grabbed me and 10 other kids and said, "We're taking you out in the woods to take the living nonsense out of you." And so we went out on a five-day outward-bound type trip. We went rock climbing and rappelling and orienteering and all sorts of stuff. And I loved every single minute of it. So where does your story go from there when you really started getting into things deep and you started uh, venturing into some of your largest mountains? Well, I was originally just, and I still am, I'm completely fascinated by taking people and giving them these interesting experiences. So we, um, I, I started working for that same outdoor program that I went on a trip with when I was 15 and we, I, I just thought it was amazing that you could expose people to a part of themselves that they didn't even know they had, like how much they could overcome. And so I was fascinated by the kind of the leadership, the personal development aspect and the outdoors was such an easy place to provide people those experiences. Um, and I believed in it so much that I always thought I had to push my own self. So climbing is great because there's always something more difficult. There's always something more exotic, more dangerous, further from home, whatever it happens to be. So I just kind of started going close to home and a little bit further from home and eventually ended up, you know, traveling around the United States climbing and then down to South America and then to the Himalayas. And it's just, it's just never ended. And when you go to places like that, are you moving there for extended periods of time? And do you have, did you have a certain place where you were always going back and calling home or? Uh, well, home changed, you know, like when you're in your twenties, you, you know, like a, I, you know, I had a 1969 Volkswagen bus. That was my home for a long time. Um, but we, I really started, I really started like the international mountaineering in 1987. And so I was still at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Um, so Colorado's my home. But then I moved to Maryland. We started the first urban outward bound program in Baltimore in 1986. And so I was the first instructor there. 
and I kept coming back to, to Maryland to help this program grow. And then I started my business in 1990 based in Maryland. And so I was really, Maryland was my home for uh, about 20 years. Definitely. And so based on Maryland, I mean, one of the things I've always been interested in after, you know, listening to some of your talks and um, mm-hmm. specifically the Google talk and reading about all these mountains you've climbed, you know, summiting K2, Everest, all pretty much all the highest peaks. Um, what was your toughest climb? Well, I, you know, I think in terms of sheer, like, brutality, like the amount of times we should have died would have been a peak called Shivling in India. And um, we started up this peak, there were just three of us, and we were going up this incredibly technically difficult climb. And a big blizzard moved in and trapped us on this ledge. The ledge was about the size of your um, kitchen table. So there's room on the top of the kitchen table for two people. And I had to sleep on chairs, and the chairs was literally a, a, a piece of rock that had peeled away, and snow had built up in it. And if I looked off the chair, you know, instead of seeing down two feet like you would in your kitchen, I was actually seeing down about 5,000 vertical feet. And while we were chopped the ledge, you know, for, two, for three days and two nights, um, our cook pot fell off the ledge. And I, I remember hearing it bang down and it just disappear in the blizzard. And without a cook pot, we couldn't melt water. So if we couldn't melt water, we couldn't eat food. And so we were still days away from, you know, the bottom. And we had no choice but to go up and over the top of this peak and uh, eventually come back off the backside. And the only way to do it was to just go nonstop, right? If you have no food or water, you just can't stop. And so somewhere around the 36th hour, uh, I leaned back on a rappel, a rope that was anchored to, that we'd anchored to the, to the wall. And all of a sudden, the, I was falling through the air, and I fall, fell 450 feet through the air before I slammed into the mountain the first time, and then bounced out and landed about 50 feet later, buried up to my knees like a dart in the super steep snow slope. And it was a miracle that I was alive, and all I had was a tiny scratch on my nose, but I had severe psychological damage <laughs> that took years to get over my, my newfound fear of height from that experience. So, so that your- that peak got yeah, kept trying to kill us, but it just in the end we didn't we we just refused to die was the way we got off the peak. Yeah, it's a good strategy. Um, so as, yeah, as, as you're yeah. going through situations like that and you're standing and standing sleeping on a something the kitchen table five thousand feet in the air, kind of yeah. what drives you to continue on on these mountains and to continue to go back in these situations? Like obviously. It's something that you want more than you fear death, which I think is really interesting to find something that you care about that much in life. So I guess kind of have you ever really thought about deep down what your why is behind summiting all these different mountains and these places? Well, you know, I, I think that's a, it's there's a, a lot to that question. Right. So a big part of it for me is when you are in that experience, you have to be the absolute best version of yourself. Like you have to be intellectually you have to be the smartest person you've ever been because these are life and death problems that you're solving so you can't get them wrong you have to be emotionally as strong as you can because when you start to become weak you know there's nothing as contagious as emotions so if you have a weak you know an emotionally weak team member they bring down the rest of the team and lastly you have to just be physically the most badass person you've ever met so when you're firing a hundred percent physically mentally and emotionally it is a powerful powerful life experience 
And when you taste it, you just want more of it. Like you always want to believe that you're capable of at least what you've been capable of before, if not hopefully more. And, I, you know, I think that's why people like, you know, a Michael Jordan or something like, you know, these real champion athletes, they always want to have the ball in their hands at the buzzer, right? They always, when, when things are look, when failure looks like it's, you know, it's going to happen, they are most excited about playing the game. And, you know, I think that's something that I don't know where it comes from, but I'm glad that I was born with that. So that's interesting. But like, if you're on one of these mountains and, and it's an off day for you, I mean, you can't have an off day. So when you approach situations like that, is it just your confidence and your training and your skills and your knowledge and mountaineering that you think helps you constantly succeed in those situations? Or is there anything in particular that you think has really helped you excel? Um, I think it's the, yeah, and you, it's a humble self-confidence. Like you would not want to, you wouldn't want to be, you know, you wouldn't want to be full of hubris or arrogance because arrogance will kill you, right? If you think the rules do not apply to you, you will die. You know, gravity works, right? Avalanches happen. So you just have to have this a belief in yourself that you will, you know, you will make the right decision. And it's not, I don't even know, it, it just, it's not an arrogant belief in yourself. It's like a, you pride yourself in making the right decision, even if it's the decision to go down. You know, like I've been very close to the summits of many, many peaks and turned around. And, you know, sometimes I'm walking away from a, you know, literally a $20,000, $50,000 personal investment. But I know if I go that extra hundred feet that I, I will, I am more likely to die or somebody else is more likely to die. So I'll turn around. So you, you just have, you have confidence in your ability to make a great decision when it matters most. So it's even exciting for you when you come to a point, I mean, that's an interesting concept is having the confidence and being excited to make the right decision, even if the decision is, hey, I can't finish this climb. So, yeah. you know, when you've invested so much time, um, I imagine and time and effort into one particular climb, um, can you give us an example of a time you had to make that decision to go down and what was going through your mind? Yeah. <laughs> The problem in the Himalayas is most of the problems that you face are not your inside yourself or because of the mountain. It's because of other people. And I remember being in Pakistan on the ninth highest mountain in the world, and I was climbing completely by myself. And I had come up from camp, you know, like I just went from camp three to the summit. I totally passed camp four. And I'm 45 minutes away from the top, and I run into this group of Germans coming down. And they had a guide with them, this German guide. And he was ahead of all of his teammates. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. This is not guiding protocol. Like the guide is always the highest person, not the lowest person on the rope team. And so no, none of them were roped together. And he was leaving his clients. You know, they were too slow for him or whatever it happened to be. And at the same time, I could see this group falling apart with all these people that had, you know, that were dependent upon this person who was no longer there for them. I could also see that there was these gigantic thunder clouds building up. 
But I knew that within an hour or two hours, the mountain was going to be engulfed in cloud. And with the cloud would come snow. And, you know, it's it's complex terrain. It was so easy to get lost. And I just looked at the situation and I said to myself, I'm 45 minutes from the top. I'm feeling like a freaking monster. But if I go and get my summit, there's a very good chance that some of these other and so I turned around 45 minutes from the top to help these people get down alive. And thank God I did because they were trashed physically and the storm did come in and it was a complete whiteout. We barely found our way down to Camp 4. When I got there, their guide had already left Camp 4. And so I ended up having to spend the night with these guys to keep them, you know, making sure nobody was going to die. And, you know, there it was. It was, you know, I could have gotten to the summit, you know, I gave, you know, I spent a ton of money and, you know, Pakistan in that part of Pakistan is not exactly the safest part of the world to go to. So there was all sorts of risk, you know, not just financial risk that I was taking to be there. And, you know, here I had to walk away from, you know, or climb away from the summit. So moving forward from there, one of the stories that I found really captivating from your first K2 climb or one of your first K2 climbs was watching a guy fall in front of you 5,000 feet and hit different peaks and ended up dying in the end, and you ended up going up to him um, with another individual and helping him out, and um, everybody else kind of stood back. So is there something different inside of you that makes you rise to the occasion in situations like that, and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, and you know, so there clearly is. So let me just tell that story real quick for your listeners. So um, we're, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm on an expedition with 12 of the best climbers in the world. So there was climbers from, you know, Spain and Italy and New Zealand, etc. And we were, um, you know, you're going up against the most dangerous mountain in the world, K2. And so you really want to be there. I thought at least at that point, I want to be there with the A team so that people had the best resume. So we're at the bottom of the peak and we're strapping on our crampons. And literally one of the guys next to me starts screaming and we look up and literally coming out of the cloud is a body. And the, and the man is alive when he's coming. It's, he's 5,000 feet above us falling through the air and his arms are waving and you just you just know that this is a, a living person and then he slams into the side of the mound there's a gigantic explosion of red the body bounces 750 feet another explosion of red another 500 feet another explosion of red and eventually came to a stop 500 feet away from 12 of the best climbers in the world and it was clear that he was dead you know like you could not have survived and only two of us had the courage to go climb up to the body. So the body lands on the trail 500 feet away from, you know, 12 of the best climbers in the world. And only two of us have the courage. And so when we got to him, we literally, we just came to a complete stop. And this was the most traumatized body I'd ever seen. And my buddy and I, we literally held hands. So here's, you know, two 40-year-old you know, mountaineers holding hands. And the reason we had to hold hands was to control our emotion because when you are with somebody when they die, you don't want them to feel fear. Like the last emotion that the soul should experience as it's leaving this earth it should be fear. It should be love, right? And so we literally had to calm our fear down. And we knew instinctively that we should, we needed to be calm and just hold this body and just put our hands on it and just push as much love into them as we possibly could. You know, and after we did that, we also knew we had to, you know, we had to package them up and, and, and take them and, 
you know, so there could be some closure. We also knew that we couldn't let his friends see how traumatized he was. His hips had been completely pulverized, and so his legs were underneath his back, and they his feet were up by his shoulders. And the source of all the blood was the back of his skull that had been completely crushed in. And so we had to reach underneath his armpits and pull out one leg, pull out the other leg, and then kind of build a little stretcher for him and lower him down to where everybody was. And it was uh, it was a brutal, brutal thing to experience. I mean, literally, it was hard to shut your eyes. You know, no matter how exhausted you were, you just could barely fall asleep because the vision was so great. But that person needed us right they needed love his family needed us to love him his partners needed us to love him then but only two people out of 12 had the courage to do that and when they study this it's not this is not heroism it's what they really call altruism and altruism is you know your you know being there for other people it really we weren't sacrificing our lives to be there for this person we yes we were made uncomfortable but we were really just trying to be there in a way that would give them like you know, all the positive things I just talked about. And the reason that I think that we had the ability to be altruistic was because we had experienced death before and we really felt that we could make a difference in this situation. And you think about your life experience, you're driving down the highway and you see a car accident. Do you stop or don't stop? And in general, you have a, a second to make that decision. And the people who tend to stop are people who feel that they can make a difference in that situation. So if you have an experience you know, in medical care or crowd control or whatever it happens to be, you're more likely to stop because you can make a difference. And really what we have to do in life is find ways to make a difference, You know, have experiences making a difference because when we're going to be ultimately needed, it would be great to be able to be there and actually make a difference. Following from there, what I'm interested to hear next is throughout your story of summiting K2 successfully, can we talk a little bit about what the experience was like, what was going through your mind, and then what it was like when you finally made it to the peak? Because I remember you contrasting that with Everest in one of your talks and saying that so many people had made it to the top of Everest that it just wasn't that fulfilling. So what was it like to make it up to the top of a mountain that very few have ever been successful at and so many have lost their life trying and then knowing that one in seven people die on the way down so you still have a whole journey just to get back home yeah yeah and you know hopefully you know maybe some of your listeners are fascinated by mountaineering if they are uh, on my speaking website which is chris b as in boy warner.com there's a video page and there's the whole you know we had filmed this uh our expedition to K2 for NBC, and we were nominated for all these Emmys, et cetera. But you could see the whole feature-length show on that website, as well as some of these talks and stuff. So you can get kind of a, a bigger, clearer picture. So really, the, the challenge, K2, if you, if you look at Everest, right, we have this statistic in our sport called the death-to-summit ratio. So how many people get to the summit versus how many people die? And on Everest, there's been almost 8,000 summits and so the death to summit ratio, I think, is around 3%. On K2, there's been about 350 summits and nearly 100 deaths. So the death to summit ratio is closer to 30% as opposed to 3% for Everest. So everything about K2 is heightened. You know, it's scarier, it's steeper, it's 
the weather is worse, etc. And so you're you live in this balance between fear and um, desire and your ability to manage that, especially when things go horribly wrong, you know, is the difference between success and failure. So when we started our summit day, um, even before dawn, the, the first person died and it was a Sherpa who chose not to clip into the climbing rope. So he made a fatal decision, literally fatal decision. And when he died, he actually slid past all of us and we watched him launch like a kid in a sliding pond in a, in a, a, a playground. He launched off the side and suddenly the body was flying 8,000 feet through the air. You know, they never even found his body in the end. Well, when you watch that happen to somebody, you are, you know, you are stopped in your tracks. And the statistics, as you had said, was that at that point, for every seven people who reached the summit, one would die. And, the, you know, one summoner would die. And so we just watched the first person die that day. And there was 22 of us trying to go to the top. So statistically, two more people would die. <laughs> so if you're, you know, one of 22 people and you know that two more people are going to die today, like it's really easy to come up with an excuse to go home. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to play this game. It's too dangerous. But we were able to overcome that fear and continue to go to the top. And it was a spectacular spectacular day if you get to see the the footage it's just phenomenal like how steep the climbing was and how you know i don't know just how brutal the whole thing was it's just really powerful so it's 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 too bad we're on a podcast it's, it's much better as a, as a piece of video and so one question i had was you know you, you mentioned you were filming it how did the filming process affect the climb i mean did it affect it negatively obviously it probably made things a little more difficult having to film the whole thing and be focused on creating a documentary of it when you should be hundred percent focused on climbing. Yeah, actually I think the film made it better. We, um, we shot the film ourselves. You, you can't take a camera crew up K2, right? It's right. Too, you know, <laughs> they would die. So we had the cameras. It was very, you know, Blair whisk or Blair witch esque, right? So if you remember that movie from, you know, the, the, the 90s or that was, but anyway, we just carried the cameras and we took them out and because of the cameras, we we wanted to get the greatest footage that was ever shot. So if the weather was terrible, if you were getting the crap kicked out of you, that was when the footage was going to be best. So we, <laughs> it was like, it was cool to get beaten up. It was cool to be covered in ice. It was cool just to be struggling in way deep snow. So yeah, we, it, I don't know. It it was inspiring to have the cameras there. It it made the whole yeah, literally everything about the trip was better because of the cameras. So Chris, I've heard you mention before that when going up these mountains, the most dangerous aspect of it is the human errors made by the individuals that you're with, and that's the leading factor to any death or injury. But on the same note, you talked about how your first summit to K two, you put together some of the best climbers in the world, and you guys weren't successful at reaching the top. So putting those two elements together, how did those puzzles kind of fit together in your head? And what did that teach you about life and leadership and creating teams and being successful on a single goal with a group of individuals? Oh, boy. I, well, there's a, that's a big question. But the powerful question or, or thing I learned in that situation where the first man fell to his death and only two of us had the courage to go higher 
I learned that you have to be with people that you can trust. And I realized that when those other 10 people were tested and did nothing, I realized I could not trust them. Like I literally could not trust them with my life. So I couldn't climb with them anymore. And I quit the expedition in that moment. I literally did. I just was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm out of here. And um, when I went back to K2 and we got to the summit, it was a team that I put together. You know, I had been invited on the first team. The second, you know, the team when we summited, I put that team together. And we, we, um, you know, the most important thing I was looking for in my partners was trustworthiness. And so how does all that tie back into the things that you're teaching when you go to a school like Wharton, one of the most prestigious business schools in the United States, maybe the world? Are those similar items and that you're teaching those individuals? In well, regards? what do I try to, to teach these groups? I really try to help them understand that behaviors drive results. And it's the behaviors of our teammates that make the difference. I mean, you could have a completely under-resourced group of people who have all the right behaviors and they're going to crush the competition. And then the second part of that that I was going to jump into where do your relationships in life rank in terms of, I mean, you've achieved some amazing things, but it sounds like from just listening to you that you value relationships with others among more than anything else. Is that kind of accurate? I mean, how does that kind of sit with you in your mind? Oh, totally. Like, I, I mean, <clears throat> look, when you're on your deathbed, would you rather be surrounded by trophies or friends? And I totally believe that accomplishments trump, or excuse me, <laughs> partnerships trump accomplishments. So, yeah, we, we are nothing without friends, without people who love us. It's so one thing I want to talk about is um, a lot of the folks on our podcast are entrepreneurs, and you yourself mm -hmm. are an entrepreneur. You founded Earthtrex. Um, yep. Can we talk a little bit about how that got started and um, just kind of give us a rundown from beginning till now with everything that you've been doing with Earthtrex? Yeah, so this is actually um, a, a pretty fun story. So clearly I was climbing all around the world. I was doing all this crazy stuff. I was teaching at Outward Bound. I had kind of a, you know, whatever, a, a management level position, but I wasn't really truly happy with what I was doing. Like I thought that I, you know, I really basically wanted to start a company. And so this coworker looked at me one day and he's like, you're crazy. Like you take all these risks with your personal life you know, like you fall off mountains, you do all this other crazy stuff. You've had frostbite on nine fingers, blah, blah, blah. But you won't take a risk with your professional life. And it was like he called me out. He's like, you can't be, you know, you're basically a chicken right now. So just go do it. Like cut the cord and go make it happen. So in 1990, I started the business with $592. And today we have 320 employees Last year, we served over a million customers. We are one of the premier brands in our industry, which is really indoor climbing gyms. Um, we, you know, I, I mean, I'm just unbelievably proud of the company that we've built. We have a huge growth path path ahead of us, and you know, it it was really all about taking the core values that we learned in mountaineering and just applying them in the business. So what's your role look like with the company right now? Um, well, I'm the CEO and we, um, you know, I, look, it, as companies grow in size, as people know, you really 
originally you start as a tactician, you know, like, you know, teaching rock climbing classes, you know, in, in our case. Um, now I do very little of that. And my most important job is making sure that my employees are happy because happy employees are more profitable. They're more productive. They're clearly funner to hang around with. <laughs> so, yeah, we I really put as much energy as I possibly can is making sure that people are happy to work for the company. They're proud of the company, you know, all the aspects that make, you know, the people happy to having their, you know, psychological needs met as being part of a team. That's my job. And then everything else takes care of itself. I mean, yes, I get dragged into conversations with lawyers and accountants and all that kind of stuff, but it's really the most important job is making people happy. And a lot of our audience is entrepreneurs or inspiring entrepreneurs. So are there any particular things that come to your mind that you do to make sure that your employees are happy and that you're running a company that people enjoy being at? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think there's lots of tactical level stuff, but I think what's important for anybody who's in a leadership position to understand is that, well, I'm going to go back slightly. Most people are in leadership positions because they are better than average at whatever they're doing, right? They're better than average salespeople. They're better than average engineers. And we come generally from, you know, more of a technical background where we are better than average. So we may have studied engineering in college and gotten our master's degree or, you know, something like that, but we don't put anywhere near the energy into learning how to be great leaders as we should. And most of us learned about leadership by mimicking another good leader or refusing to do the stupid stuff that bad leaders do. And one of the things I've been really lucky at, you know, as a teacher of leadership is I've really studied leadership. And there's some really simple things that allow you to be infinitely more effective as a leader. So right now, let's just assume that everybody who's listening is an intuitively great leader. Like you kind of have something inside your soul that allows you to be right most of the time in leadership. But if you were intellectually great, if you really studied it, if you really understood the formulas and the way that people work, then you could actually be more effective more often. And a simple one of these tools is understanding that people have, you know, your followers, the people on your team have six psychological needs. And if you meet those psychological needs, then they will not be dysfunctional, right? They will be more productive. They'll be more fun to hang around with, et cetera. And if you just, you know, like little things like that, the, the needs are simple. Like everybody needs to be respected. Everyone needs to be given recognition for their work, you know, that they've done. Everybody needs to feel like that they're growing personally as being a part of this team. They need to feel like they belong to the team, like nobody's kind of ostracized or, you know, pushed aside or whatever. Um, they need to, um, it, it has to have meaning, this, this, this organization, like we're doing a greater good. This is not just about us making profits, about making the world a better place. And lastly, people need autonomy, like let leave people alone so they can do their work. Let them. Yes. Let them fail. Don't micromanage them. It just drives them freaking crazy. So simple things like that. If you just like if I, you know, I spend a lot of time with groups just helping people understand that there are some simple things that we can do on a regular basis that's going to make everything much, much more effective. Right. And you wrote a book focusing on leadership, high altitude leadership. And um, I actually wanted to ask you more about the process of the book. If you guys want to find out what's in the book, well, you can go buy it. We'll have it linked in the show notes. But um, 
I wanted to ask about the process of the book and kind of what made you want to write it and um, what, what just take me through, you know, first stages of, hey, I'm writing this, I've got a rough draft on the table too, it's published. Yeah, that's a cool question because um, I, you know, like, look, everybody, I, a lot of people think like, oh, it'd be great to run a marathon, it'd be great to write a book, you know, it'd be great to summit Mount Everest, but they don't ever do it. And I was on a trip in South America um, and one of the clients had written a book before and he was a business consultant. He's like, you know, Warner, like I'm listening to everything you're saying. Like there's a book in here. Like we should sit down together and write the book. And I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, like I'll just, you know, I'll just humor you by saying yes. And then he turned around and he had an agent and all of a sudden the agent was calling him and said, yeah, yeah, I think you can get a deal on this book. I'm like, oh my goodness, now we're committed. You're like, we signed up for the marathon. Now we got to run the thing. And I, I, I loved writing the book as soon as we had the contract because all of a sudden now you had to do it. And then, you know, writing a book is a very, even though we, co-wrote parts like we wrote our own part and we kind of tried to figure out how to make it all work together so um but it was it was it was a cool process like just literally just sitting you know in a quiet place and just really going you know putting these thoughts that you have on paper and there's so much craft in writing that's really it's just a cool thing like it you know it's it's i don't know it's just, like i was skiing this morning and it's just so easy to kind of you know, tumble your way down the hill. And it's really something special to make graceful turns. And, you know, I don't know, just it. And that's what I found about writing. It's just there's a there's a because of the craft of writing. So that whole process of just sitting down, writing pages, sending it back and forth, you know, editing each other's ideas was just it was just cool. I, I'm really proud of having been able to, to write a book. Um, I have another book in my head. I guess I just need to get a contract to get me to sit down and write the thing. So, Yeah, it's a really cool and unique perspective. When you really start diving into a trade or a sport or a field and you try to reach the top, you kind of realize how much of an art it is. And uh, I haven't really heard anybody describe writing that way, but I definitely could see where it comes into play, so that's cool. I think one of the fears of writing is that you don't have the craft. Like, you don't have the skill. You know, it's like, yeah, I'd love to you know, do woodworking, but I don't know how to, you know, work a lathe or something. And you're like, well, it's, it's really, you probably have more skill than you think. So some final questions to kind of wrap up, just some random ones. Uh, I guess one thing I'm always really interested in the people that we talk to are when it comes to your family and siblings, you said one of six, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of six. And what do your siblings do today and kind of how to how have their lives unfolded? Oh, it's a uh, big Irish Catholic family, so it's super fascinating. <laughs> so one, uh, you know, I have two brothers that are engineers. I have a sister who uh, was a, a teacher and had a master's degree in special education, and then um, she ended up having a big family. Another brother who works in um, the, uh, you know, kind of the construction field. And then my youngest brother is a journalist who lives in Rome, and uh, he is really the most exciting member of the family. So. And then another one that came up as you were talking about the business consultant that um, encouraged you to write the book. Who are some of the coolest people that you've led on expeditions? Oh, boy. You know, so we in the last bunch of years, we were doing mainly um, expeditions, two different types, leadership development expeditions. So, look, I worked with covert ops teams and special ops teams and stuff like that. 
And then I also um, were doing a lot of fundraising trips. So Doug Allman, who introduced us, who now runs Pelotonia, he when he was at Livestrong, we did a lot of uh, trips for Livestrong. You know, just I'm I'm not fascinated at all by celebrity. I'm super fascinated by people who will take a risk. And if you've been, you know, if you're a cancer survivor, somebody who struggled and went through all the fear, you know, the potential to to die and all of this impact that that has on your loved ones as well as yourself. And then you say, you know what, I'm going to go take another risk. I'm going to go now climb Kilimanjaro or go down to South America and climb this glaciated volcano like that. Those people fascinate me, you know, that I'm going to take myself so out of my comfort zone and see what I'm made of. Like, I'm totally willing to be afraid and cold and uncomfortable. And yeah, that is that's what fascinates me. So following from that, can you talk a little bit more depth about your experiences with the special operations groups and individuals in those lines? I mean, they're taking great risk and they're at an elite level in what they do. What's it like working with those individuals and what kind of things do you teach them or what are the experiences like? Uh, yeah, so I think that the so there's lots of aspects to that. It, it's it's the recognition by that group of people know that it's the behaviors of every member of the team that will get us home alive. It's not our guns. It's not our technology. It's not, you know, something else. It's the, it literally comes down to each person being the very best version of themselves. And they hold themselves to that standard. I mean, if, if look, I, I, I was with all the coaches, of the Ravens, when they won the Super Bowl. I've done a lot of other super cool stuff. I was with the, the National Counterterrorism Task Force that hunted down Bin Laden. Like when you're with a group of people like that, they they will sacrifice so much of themselves for the good of the team. And a cool like a cool story from the Ravens when they won the Super Bowl. You think about professional football players, right? Big, scary dudes. You know what word they had emblazoned on the wall of their weight room? Love. It was so awesome. It was like, here are these humongous dudes, and love was the key word for their success. You know, like, I love that. Like, when a group realizes it's about the behaviors that are going to drive the results, that's, they, they get it. That's when they really start winning because then they really hold each other to these behaviors. Yeah, it's incredible. I really, I really like that concept. I never quite heard it put that way behaviors drive results. Um, and in the same way, you know, I think that a lot of things that one of the things I'm always interested in is culture and, um, mm. you know, how can you, how can you emphasize those behaviors to build the culture you want, whether that's in, you know, at your office or at your home or in your friend group? Yeah. So that's all right. So now we're, now you're talking like another hour minimum, <laughs> but let me <laughs> simplify, simplify this. So you are judged based on two axes. So imagine if you took a piece of paper and you put it down on the ground, you drew one arrow that went vertically and one arrow that went horizontally. And you're judged on two things. So your girlfriend, your mom, you know, your, your boss, whatever, will judge you on one axis is, do you deliver strategic results? Like, did you take the garbage out? Did you remember that it's my birthday? You know, like all those kinds of little things. Did you get this project done? Did you get your homework done? 
The other axis is, are you aligned with my core values? So people, and you know, when I do these big products with companies, you know, we really, you know, I, we trick them into, into, into doing this, judging other people that they've never met. And then all of a sudden it allows them to, to then start to judge themselves. So, um, yeah, people are like, wow, I really admire the fact that that person could get to the summit of K2, but he's a jerk, right? <laughs> or I really like the fact that, you know, she is extremely good looking, but she's a jerk. And so those people you don't want to be around. And, you know, you really love this other person because they're the nicest person in the world, but they don't get anything done. You know, like you can't count on them to do stuff. So who do you want to surround yourself by is the people that get stuff done and are lovable, you know, that are that, you know, you can count on. They share your same core values and any business that surrounds themselves by people who get stuff done and share their core values. Those people are the winners. And, you know, they they outperform their peers. And if you run a team and you have somebody who is not aligned with your core values and doesn't get stuff done or, you know, any combination of that, like, you have to get rid of those people. You have to build your whole company around taking care of the people who get stuff done and are aligned with your core values. Chris, that was awesome. I think that's the best place to wrap up. Um super happy to have you and appreciate your time you know it's valuable and you could be hanging out with the ravens or whoever right. else you hang out with <laughs> on a normal basis um but if you ever find yourself summoned in the mountains of columbus ohio make sure to let us know i'd love to meet you in person and um thanks right. for the messages that you had for all of our listeners uh no problem all right go forth conquer columbus all right conquerors that's the end of episode 41 if you like that episode Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. Also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor. Check out that podcast app you're listening to us on and go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. Our final shout-out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, folks, that's all we got. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? 
once again. I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.